Before we get into today's episode, I've created a short questionnaire that will help me get to know you better. Those that fill out the questionnaire will get entered into a draw to win an Amazon gift card. So there's a link in the description for the episode. Click it, fill out the questionnaire, and I look forward to hearing your feedback. Now for today's episode. This is The Michael Bryan Show. Hi everyone, welcome back to the show and today I'm joined with Wendy White, who's the CEO of Face It Together, which is an addiction wellness non-profit. Wendy, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks Michael for having me, I appreciate it. So when it comes to addiction, I imagine lots of different complications, it's never a straight line in terms of helping someone recover, hopefully get their life back. What have you found has been the real needle mover with it? Is it having supportive people around you? Is it having the right course of treatment? Like what have you found in your experience to be the things that make the biggest difference? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, addiction is messy. Um, it it often has has a lot of positive um, outcomes when people are trying to get well, but there's can be a lot of setbacks too, and it's just the course of the illness. Um, but I think our approach is really specialized to each individual person and focuses on the person as a whole versus um, really focusing on the substance because the substance is often um, a symptom of something else going in in that person's life. And so um, I think the for our program, having a peer, having someone who's walked those steps that helps remove some of that shame and stigma that surrounds addiction. I think that's the biggest barrier in a lot of people um, getting help and being honest about where they are in their journey. And so creating an environment where people can um, truly talk about where they're at, what they're going through, and if they do have a setback, that they have the support there to help them through it. It must be very tough to do that like the idea of you could try your best but someone may always have this barrier up this wall up you could try and be as empathetic as you can and compassionate but they still might never really let go for want of a better expression or let the help in I guess you could say because the amount of people that would put barriers up they get so detached because they don't think anyone else can fully understand and to a certain extent they might be right as in someone may understand parts of it a certain percentage of it but there might not be anybody that can truly 100% understand the full context of the situation that you've been in which is a tough ask for someone on the outside to ever get to that point before you're then able to accept the advice or the help like that that tug of war that push and pull must be quite difficult Yeah, I I mean, I think that is very accurate. I mean, even though um, all of our coaches have peer experience, they certainly haven't walked the exact same steps that each individual has walked. And so nobody knows 100% what someone is going through. Um, But I think from in terms of letting people in, I think it starts, there's so much feeling of unworthiness when people are deep in their addiction. They don't feel that they're worthy of the the care and respect and love that they deserve. And that's honestly the advice society gives loved ones as well. They're like, let them hit rock bottom, um, cut them out of your life. They're not doing you any good or, you know, whatever the, the story goes. 
um, that's not the right path to get people well. And so we're very diligent about creating a space that is very um, filled with dignity and respect, bright colors, um, windows. It's not a cinder block basement um, because everybody deserves to be treated as a human. And I think that's the first step in getting people well and getting people to recognize that they, they deserve that care. And um, also helping loved ones recognize that there's ways to help and connect in a way that is healthy and helpful. And that it doesn't mean that someone has to hit rock bottom before they get help. I think that's quite a common theme with a lot of people's journey is they all seem to hit rock bottom, don't they? And for some reason, for whatever reason it is, every comeback story or every like rags to riches, as they say, it always involves getting to rock bottom. And I can't fathom why in a way like why should should someone have to hit rock bottom before they then decide to do something about it and i speak of someone with health conditions as well wendy so i get it as well like i wish i could afford to be lazy sometimes i wish i could afford to take my eye off the ball you know but it's a slippery slope as i'm sure you're aware as well whereby it gets so easy to not do the things that you need to do or it gets so easy to just keep doing the things that you've always done and it puts you in this position where it's harder to change than it is to just stay the same and I wonder if that's the same throughout to the point where people hit rock bottom maybe I wonder what you think Wendy but maybe it's because they don't they don't experience the decline they don't think they're declining Surely if you notice maybe you've lost a step or you keep forgetting where you put your keys or I don't know, there must be something that makes you connect and okay, I'm losing a step here or mm-hmm. something's not quite going the way it normally is despite you know doing the same thing. I'm not getting the same result anymore. What needs to change? I wonder if that's what it is. People just don't notice that they're declining. Yeah, I, I think that's um, certainly could be part of it. I think there is, um, particularly with alcohol, it's so pervasive across society that it's it's so normalized that people don't recognize the impact that alcohol is having on their life. And so they like, this is what I do. I go to a work party and I'm going to have three, four, five drinks and I'm going to come home and maybe have a couple more. I mean, it's just, that's just normal. And so I think it takes a lot more for people to recognize that they have a problem with it. Um, And we really do, I mean, we work with anybody from um, the homeless to an executive at an organization is what I always say. Um, But really our sweet spot of where we want to help people is the people that are still employed, still married, still in their house, all of those. It's not... Um, kind of the stereotypical person with addiction. And I think it's that stereotype too that drives it. Like, well, I'm still working. I'm functioning. I'm doing what I need to be doing. I don't need help. I got this. I look great from the outside. Look, you know, outside looking Mm -hmm. in might be a mess behind closed doors, but you know, you just keep doing the things. And so I think it is helping um, change that stigma, as I mentioned earlier, and just um, getting people to recognize that that there are ways to get help before you get to that point. Um, and part of our program too, we 
support harm reduction, which I think is a great concept to talk through when you are in that spot. So, you know, maybe, like I said, you go to the work party and you have five drinks. Well, maybe you go to the work party and you have two drinks. Okay, great. Like that's, that's progress, right? That's better. It's going to make your life healthier, happier. Um, but it doesn't mean that you have to cut everything out. And so just figuring out that right balance and, um, again, removing that stigma that I think is so prevalent. I wonder what your take is on the idea of being functional, because that might play into what we've been talking about. And I mentioned, you know, you might not experience the decline. It could be a cultural thing. But for some reason, we have this idea that if you're functional, then you're okay. And I wonder if that might play into it, whereby if it's normal for all of your friends to go out for a drink, apparently if you don't do that that's seen as wrong for some reason and I mean I'm not saying that you can't have any drink at all but I'm saying that sometimes being functional shouldn't necessarily be the barometer for improving yourself in a way Uh, I wonder what what your thoughts are on on that yeah I you know I think it's um it is tricky because it's usually a you want to say like a gradual engagement, right? Like you're, you slowly are drinking more, you're slowly, you may be adding another substance into your life, whatever that looks like. And so it's a gradual change. So yes, that like what's functioning is probably a little bit difficult to define. Um, but when, if you're having those, you know, <laughs> however many drinks the night before, you're certainly not working to your full potential the next day, you're, you know, probably didn't sleep well, you're um, could be hungover, probably, maybe not if you're doing this all the time, but you know, you're just still not um, at your full potential. Um, I think it's really being mindful about um, when you are drinking or having um, mar- or smoking marijuana, whatever it might be, um, being mindful of, of the why. So if you are doing it from a like, oh, I'm trying to cope with something, okay, maybe maybe this isn't the best way to be going about it. Like if you're trying to uh, mask something else that's going on in your life, then then there needs to be probably some other intervention, some other discussion that needs to be happening around that aspect. Um, but I think that is tricky because it is, it's gradual. And again, people think as long as you're, you know, you're still working, you're still, you know, the functioning, we don't use the word alcoholic, but the functioning alcoholic that people talk about in society, um, you know, that's, you know, people don't think that you need help at that point because you're, you're doing all the things, but that's not always the case. Your, your life isn't as happy and healthy as it could be. Yeah, I guess it makes it harder as well because you as the addictee, for want of a better word, can't think of another word, but if you're the person that's addicted to the thing, you don't think you are, you don't think you need the help. And then if you're functional, no one else thinks that you need the help either. It's never going to happen despite the situation that you're in. And, you know, I've been addicted to exercise and I needed it and, and all of those, you know, there are healthy addictions as well, but I think everything has a, a point and a limit at a point where you say, you know what, you're not getting the benefits to the consequences here. Like you've got to figure out what your dosage is. And I think that can be an issue whereby you get the benefits in a way by being addicted depending on what it is and yet 
if you don't think you need the help, you're getting the benefits. Other people see you functioning outside of what you're addicted to. They don't think you need the help either. When do the cracks start showing? Is it behind closed doors, but you've had everyone tell you that you're fine? You've told yourself that you're fine. So when do we actually notice the signs? Do we ever notice them? Whereby, you know, maybe I am like degrading here and I do need, I do need something. It's hard to discern it if everything around you is telling you that you're fine and you don't need the help. I, I mean, I think we have a lot of, um, a lot of our member stories kind of resonate with that, you know, where they are, I said, doing all the things, they've got a great job, they have a great family. Um, and we have several people that have shared their story where it, they were fine for weeks at a time. And then they would go on a bender for five days and then have to go to detox. And so, um, but from the outside, again, they would look like they're fine, but they recognize like, this is not right. This is not, most people are not having to go through this. And so I need to get help with this. Um, you know, I think it's really in having that self-awareness of what impact is this having on me, on my family, on my work? Um, and, and am I losing, am I replacing something else that used to be important in my life with the substance use? So, you know, are you losing connections with your family? Are you, you know, maybe you were religious and going to church and now you're not going to church anymore or, um, you know, just recognizing the signs that you're maybe making a change that isn't what aligned with who you were, and then maybe recognizing that there might need to be something that needs to be done. That's really interesting prompt, actually, of like, where is whatever it is, could be exercise, alcohol, drugs, whatever it is, pick your addiction. But right. where is it replacing something else that used to be important to you? That's quite an interesting prompt because it then becomes more of a priority than the thing that you've replaced it with like you use church as an example I'm not religious myself but if you were and you're replacing church with the thing and yet you claim to be religious that means it's moved up in your priority list and how you would rather spend your time so it's quite an interesting way of looking at it do you have anything else that can help people maybe highlight something that they might need to back off from maybe they're not quite fully kind of you know your whole life is taken over by this thing it's time for an intervention but maybe things are bubbling up behind the scenes maybe there's a preference for one thing over something else and they're not quite sure how to to highlight it is there anything else like that that you can think of yeah I guess the I mean this would be as things progress but I know I've heard a lot you know like if you're consistently missing work on a Monday like oh that <laughs> that might be a sign that you're having a little too much fun on a weekend and um, you know, just again, I, it's again, it's a change in your pattern of your behavior. If that's not something you have consistently done being, you know, recognizing that that's not, and as an employer, that's also important to be recognizing those things. And so creating, um, creating a space within that work environment where people can be open and honest about what they're going through. Um, if somebody gets a cancer diagnosis, the, <laughs> First thing that happens is everybody, you know, gathers around them and there's a meal train and there's all these things to help support that individual. Well, if you are struggling with addiction or you have a loved one that's struggling with addiction, you don't say a word, you don't talk about it, you don't do anything, and then there's nobody there to support you. And so um, not quite answering your question, I apologize, I segued, but um, 
I just think creating that environment is so important because I think it also helps people be more cognizant about what's going on in their life if they know it's something that they can talk about and get help and support for. That actually speaks to the support system, or at least the people around you anyway, having their own support as well. Like it's not just as easy as supporting the person going through it because they might be less desiring the actual support. You know, there's nothing wrong with them. I'm fine. Sometimes it's the person closest to you that needs to tell you what the situation is. But then going through it, as you said, you know, you have a medical condition, it's cancer, it's terminal, instantly everyone's gathering around and wanting your support, getting ready for some end of life treatment if you need it, that sort of thing. With an addiction, you don't get the same response from the people around you. And I wonder if it's because we don't necessarily know how to handle it. And then we don't know how the actual person would handle it if we didn't handle it in the best way weird roundabout way of putting it mm-hmm. but is that is that why we actually recommend that support systems are in place for the people that support the people that potentially or do in fact have the addiction to things is it that complicated though where like not just the person needs the help but everybody around the person needs the help as well yeah, I I fully uh, agree. I fully support that everybody around the person needs help as well. Um, it it is, and we have a lot of stories where um, individuals were deep in their addiction. You know, the, the unfortunately, it's part of it's the shame and stigma that I keep going back to. So people don't want to ask for that help. Um, then if they do ask for help, they get the advice as a loved one, like you got to let them hit rock bottom. You've got to have tough love. Um, And so then we end up approaching the person with addiction with a lot of nagging and negative energy, and that doesn't help them motivate to change. And so by engaging in our loved one program or some other program that helps teach some of those tools, there's ways to create healthy boundaries and to engage in a way that is healthy and helpful, um, and then end up having a better relationship with that person with addiction. And then oftentimes it motivates them to then either, you know, go to treatment, seek a peer coach, whatever it it is. Um, and so I think it's super important. Our program is really focused on the health of the loved one, uh, where like loved ones will call us and they're just desperate to get help for the person with addiction in their life. Um, but really they need as much support as the person with addiction because they're often also not sleeping because they're worried about where their person is they're using maybe unhealthy coping skills like overeating or maybe they're turning to drinking because they're trying to cope with the fact that this person's gone they Mm -hmm. don't know where they are um and so they need help and support too to have healthy ways to cope through that that struggle so i think it's super important and it helps make the whole process i think better for everyone because they've got the right they're there in it together and doing it in a way that is healthy and helpful um one story that i like to share one of our staff members um at her previous employer she um her son has opioid addiction and was struggling with getting him treat you know getting him help he was out she was sleeping on the floor outside his bedroom to make sure that he didn't sneak out at night. I mean, going through all the motions of this. And so obviously not her best self at work because 
you know, not sleeping well, all those things. Um, she turned in her notice and was coming to work for Face It Together and ended up sharing with her boss that this was what she was going through and this is why she was coming to work here. Um, turns out they were both struggling with their sons and addiction, but all this time had never shared it. And again, it's that um, that shame around it and not wanting to be open and honest. And really, they could have been a great support system for each other, but they didn't know they were both going through the same thing. Uh, it must be. I mean, can you imagine someone that's not at rock bottom yet, has people surrounding them that's maybe like trying to encourage them, but comes across as nagging or they're trying to convince them to do the right thing. It's almost like they play a part in them hitting rock bottom, if, you know, being a bit cynical about it. Whereas yeah. like the people that are around you are kind of pushing you down because they've been told that they need to so that you can then lift them up, which is quite disencouraging. Disencouraging. It's quite discouraging as someone that's trying to support someone, knowing that you play a part in them needing the help. And it's actually more help than if you hadn't said anything at all, in a way. You know, like you don't push them down. So you, they don't need to come up from rock bottom if you hadn't stepped in to begin with. Yeah, I mean, it, it's all about being able, I and mean, you, you still need to be able to create those healthy boundaries. So there is um, that need to to make sure you're, you're not sacrificing your own wellness just to be supportive of that person, but there's ways to do it. That isn't, um, that creates those boundaries, but yet helps to support them. And so it's not, um, you know, disengaging or like, I can't, I have to cut you out of my life. Um, that, that doesn't help. Um, it doesn't, the opposite of addiction is connection is the saying. And so, um, you know, just being able to have those those tools to be able to provide that support. If someone's in that position, what's worked? What version of connections helped? How have you been able to encourage people to turn that corner and make the change and get to a space where they start building momentum in the other way? It's hard. It's hard to do. And I imagine everyone will have a different approach. The way that I picture it, Wendy, is like the fun uncle giving you a little bit of advice. You know, someone that you get along with, someone that's quite funny. And they go, oh, you know that thing that you do? Like, I can tell that you're groggy for at least two or three days afterwards. And it's affecting your work or someone that can be blunt because they've got that door that's already pre-opened for them you know like the fun you get along and then they turn around and say by the way you're destroying a big part of your life by doing this pull your socks up otherwise it's going to get worse I feel like that is the kind of relationship that at least I would like it's someone that I'm fun I get along with an amazing relationship with it's almost like Hmm, trying to think someone where the relationship is so strong and so positive that they can tell a joke that's a bit a bit direct you know like someone's make makes fun out of you as a joke and you know it's funny there's so few people that can do that so few people that can make fun of you and you know intrinsically that it's a joke some people you get completely defensive you start having a go at them like how could you say such a thing and they meant it as a joke but you don't know because you're not close enough to them 
to assume that they're making fun. We need more connections like that, whereby they can be blunt and you know instantly that they've got your best interest at heart without having to over-explain it or, you know, all of the other stuff that comes along with the level of connection that's not quite there yet. I've had both of those. That's why I can speak to it. I've had someone that can make fun of me all they want, and I know it's a joke and it's fine, and we get on with that. actually builds the connection in a way. But then someone else will do the same thing, and I'm like, no, why are you doing that? Not even remotely funny. What are you even <laughs> saying? How can we create that environment whereby someone can be blunt and honest and can have that kind of relationship with us and it be productive because there's so many versions of it that aren't productive yeah I think that is really the power of peer coaching in the fact that um, the the people that are doing the coaching have had that experience either as a person with addiction or as a loved one um, paired up appropriately so persons with addiction with a person with addiction but um, I think it's having that peer experience. And so being able to um, appropriately share their story enough so that the person that they're working with understands the journey that they've been on and they build that rapport and that trust with each other. And so then it does give that peer coach the ability to ask the question that someone else might not be willing to ask them or um, encourage them in a way that someone else might not be able to effectively do. Um, and on the flip side, it can help that person be more honest about where they're at because they can feel like they are in a safe environment and aren't going to get judged by saying, you know, I, I, ma I made a mistake last night or whatever that might be. Um, and so I think it is just really creating, it, it is about that relationship as you were talking about in your examples, it's having that um, safe, respectful, um, non-judgmental space where um, people can then motivate to have change. So I think it's, and it's helping educate loved ones on that as well, um, helping them, you know, and, and focusing on the right things. Like our conversations aren't about, the substance because that's again as I mentioned earlier is not really the issue it's other things in their life and that's how they're coping with whatever that thing is and so oftentimes I think as loved ones we would come at it from the wrong the wrong angle <laughs> we're asking the wrong questions in a very yeah. negative and judgmental way and so helping educate loved ones on really what addiction is and what to expect with addiction and then helping them change the narrative in what they're saying to those individuals can you give loved ones any tools tips prompts you mentioned it's not about the substance or the what the addiction is but what can they say to them how can they open this door of trying to encourage them at least in the opposite direction from what's not helping them how can you create the questions or the prompts for loved ones because i imagine peer coaches get some kind of education on how to speak to them what kinds of things to stay away from how to build rapport those kinds of things i found that sometimes family close relatives they have the hardest time opening them up because of a little thing i like to call consequences <laughs> like if you're close to them if you're living with them 
the consequences of sharing, of being honest, of being open are a lot bigger than someone that you only ever see on a Zoom call once every couple of months. Like it's such a high touch environment being a loved one that I guess the risk inside the person's head probably outweighs the benefit in, in that kind of scenario. But then as we've said, if you get it right, the change can be a lot bigger if a loved one is armed with this versus someone that they might see every month or, or whatever the case is. It's, I feel like the help will be a lot stronger if the person that you have a high-touch relationship with knew how to do this. So how can they? Yeah. Um, so again, I'm not one of the loved one coaches, so my loved one coaches would do this much better than me. Um, but I think it's, really like starting with just listening. So listening to where they're at, listening to what they're saying, trying to not come at them with judgment. Um, like one example that I was in a conversation recently, you know, is it about, well, where did you get the alcohol? Does it matter where they got the alcohol? Why did they get the alcohol? So it's, it's thinking about things in a, um, less judgmental way and then listening to wh what they're going through and then trying to figure out what steps you can take to support them in whatever aspect that is. Um, again, it's still setting those healthy boundaries because you don't want to be um, giving up your whole self. So it's, you know, like, okay, you can, you can live with me, but that means you're going to do this or, you know, so setting those boundaries around um, what, what is going on. And so um, again, it's listening, it's being non-judgmental, it's being supportive, um, but yet, protecting yourself as well so that you're not um, putting yourself in a difficult position notice as well that a lot of these little cues and ways that people can i guess discern whether it's judgmental or not is quite subconscious in a way like it's something that's in the way that you ask it it's your body language it's the little micro expressions that some people are more attuned to than others is there anything that because you can't just tell someone to be less judgmental because it, it's hard. They're not really sure how to be less judgmental in a way. But you've got this situation where someone will have a reaction. It sounds like the difference between those two questions that you said is one's a reaction and one's thinking about it, processing what they've said, and then asking the question. But you've got to learn to be less reactive, I guess you could say. Is it as easy as that? Because so many people will probably sit there listening, thinking, how can I be less judgmental? Like They've been doing this for ages, and it's so hard to get them to, they feel like they might have to force the issue. Like Judgmental might actually speed up this whole process if I do it this way, but there's clearly a better way. How can you help people have this anti-judgmental side of things because it i imagine it can stop it in its tracks can't it like if someone senses that they're being judged that's as far as the conversation will go yeah um what came to my mind i'm the mother of a teenager and so um i um i have to use these tactics when communicating with her and i don't always <laughs> do well like um you know, I screw up too. And so as, you know, she's asking whatever, I want to just jump, right? But without really listening, I want to just jump to the answer that I think needs to happen. And so I, it isn't easy at all. And you loved ones will screw up. I mean, it's 
the way it the way it is. It's a change in behavior and it takes time and it's hard work. But um, things go much better with my teenage daughter if I just take the time to listen to her and then respond instead of making up my decision on how to react before I fully listen to what she had to say. Um, maybe a small, silly example, but um, I think it's easy to um, come into the conversation with your own preconceived ideas. And so it's helping to, or taking the time to pause and then really think about um, how you're approaching the situation. I found as well, and this is something to, to what you said, it's not going in with your own ideas about what you want to happen, about the way that you want it to go. Because you can ask the question to get the answer that you want very often, especially when someone's not as adapt at you know, answering questions as, as you. You can ask the right question to get the answer that you already know that they should be saying. So you've played this whole thing out in your head and you ask the question that the only possible answer will be the one that you wanted. Um, and that's, that's tough when you're dealing with people that don't necessarily think the same way that you do. And with addiction, they might not think they've got a problem. They may not think there's anything, an issue at all. So if you say things like, how did you get it? How often are you doing it? Like, who, who are you taking it with let's say there's there's so much to that that you don't even need to know you don't need to know all of that you just need to know why are they doing it because that will form part of the solution because you can help them achieve that thing with less negative consequences and that's all that they would need you know that you gradually replace one thing with the other and they're instantly better off and I just think that very often it's so because in a fast-paced world it's easy to react because you keep up with the pace of life sometimes and I found that the slower I can go the better it is because I've slowed down and that's so difficult to do it takes practice it takes a lot of practice and I think more people need to have this sense of pausing before they say anything or give yourself a chance. Like if someone tells you something that's quite traumatic, pausing for a bit to process it is perfectly normal. You know, if someone's got an opioid addiction or maybe they're an alcoholic or whatever it is, and they're safe enough with you to complain in air quotes and tell you that that's hard to to process and deal with and the words that come out of your mouth after that need to be important they need to be thought out they need to be calculated but in a positive way not just calculated to get the outcome that you want and you need if anything you need to tell them that you need to go away and process it and come back once i try and figure out what's best and that's difficult to do because in the moment, whether you react, whether you freeze, whether you get defensive, that can have more negative consequences than positive because you're having the conversation from that position. And in a fast-paced world, some people don't have the time to come back to something later on in the day. They need to handle it now instead of handling it 
tomorrow or next week or whatever the case is is it as easy as that just communicating that you might need to take some time with this before we restart this conversation you know like put the pin back in and we'll we'll open it again next week once i've had the chance to process it so i can give you the help that you need how do you then go from figuring out what the issue is to then being in the space whereby you can actually have this productively because i think i've got a bit of a grasp on it after what i've just said but i imagine there's some loopholes and things that i've missed like how would you help someone help someone yeah i mean i i think it is it is just that and if you need to take a moment i think that's okay that's a boundary right like i need to i need to t- i need to think about this a little bit instead of reacting because if you um react in a inappropriate way you can certainly take steps backwards um, I think it is, you kind of mentioned this, but maybe adjusting your expectations where I think a lot of, um, it's not exactly how you said it, but part of what, um, part of what you said was kind of thinking, thinking about things a little bit differently. And so, you know, I think loved ones come in and they want, you know, they, they want the end game. They want the full, you know, everything. Well, you know, if like in the harm reduction example, if we go from, drinking a case of beer at night to a six pack of beer at night, like, didn't we make progress, like celebrate that success. And so instead of coming that with, well, you're still drinking six beers a night, like the the nagging approach to it instead, like, wow, I'm so proud of you that you've cut from 24 to six or, Mm -hmm. um, and so being okay, like maybe you'll still get to where the loved one wants to be, but be okay with where you're at today if you're making progress. And so then creating that like positive environment, positive reinforcement, you know, all of those um, tactics. Yeah, um, yeah. But so it is, it's adjusting the approach. And I mean, you could certainly see in that example, like it could go in a good direction or it could go in a bad direction. And it's all about adjusting your expectations. Also as well, like the idea of it going quickly as well. I think some people need to forget about that. Uh, I think. I think, think people want it to go quickly. They want them to just do this thing and it'll go away. And I don't think that ever happens. Have you, have you had an experience whereby, you know, the desire is for it to go quickly? And I mean, quickly is a relative term, I imagine, but quickly and it goes quickly. Like someone wants it to go fast and it does. Have you ever had that? I think it's, it's always a journey. I mean, I often, um, I often equate it for me, like food and weight loss, like it's a journey, right? It's, you know, I can do really good for a while and then, oh, I'm going to struggle because I really want (laughs) that, whatever, (laughs) Um, or you have a bad day and I want to go, you know, eat a bag of chips or whatever. Um, Same thing can go for addiction. And so it's, it's, you know, people can be really good. Actually, I mean, during COVID, we had a lot of re-engagement because I think people were well, and then COVID was a stressor, obviously, for all of us. And um, and so, it, it, again, it's being it's recognizing that and knowing what your support system is. But I don't think it's ever quick. Um, it's it's a process. Do people, you know? And then you get to a point where it's not people aren't obsessing about it every day, but um, it's, it is a process to get there. Any kind of behavior change is not, you know, any habit forming, you know, whatever it takes time. It's not a quick process. I imagine the idea of harm reduction took a weird turn during the pandemic. 
I don't talk about the pandemic a whole lot on the show, but with something like habits and addictions and managing stresses and things of that nature, I imagine you had to go through quite a journey, should we say, during the pandemic, especially with, you know, people with different coping mechanisms, some healthier than others. What was that like? I don't talk about it a lot, but what was the pandemic like for for yourselves? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it certainly was a stressor for a lot of people. So as I mentioned, we had a lot of re-engagement. Um, we do offer video coaching. So it was a really easy transition for us to be able to provide that support. So that was really good and positive. And we're still providing about 60, I think it's 60% of our coaching sessions um, by video. Um, which prior was much, much lower than that. So, you know, the world has changed. Um, but I think, you know, there it was a lot of people were recognizing they were home and, you know, doing drinking too much or smoking too much pot or whatever, again, it may look like, um, and then recognize that they needed some help. And so, but that was just one example where we just saw the stressors and we did see kind of a higher than normal amount of re-engagement. I've also heard a bit of a rumor that you have quite the background yourself in terms of addictions and things of that nature. So without prying too much to start with, what, what was your own journey like, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, I, um, I think that my story is very similar to kind of a lot of what we talked about, like um, getting, getting help or making a change before you hit the proverbial rock bottom. Um, but as well, as I kind of mentioned a moment ago, um, I was on weight loss journey, right? So I um, recognized I needed to make some changes in my life. And I also had um, gone to the doctor, gotten some lab values that were, they weren't awful, but they weren't awesome. So anyway, I'm going to make some changes. I'm going to lose some weight, going to get healthier. Um, so part of that, then I kept telling myself, okay, so for the month of October, I'm not going to drink. And I do really good for a week or two. Um, I was in a stressful position. I worked for an individual that we didn't always see eye to eye. So things didn't always go well there. So I'd go a couple of weeks. I'd have a bad day at work. I'd come home. I'd drink two bottles of wine and start over again the next day. And this just was a continual pattern. And um I just, I have four kids. I wasn't present. So when you, you know, I mentioned earlier when you're replacing something else with something else that used to mean a lot to you, I was spending more yeah. time drinking my bottle of wine than spending time with my kids. And so, um, you know, I have four kids, loving husband, uh, again, that story of everything probably looked great from the outside looking in uh, great job, great family. Um, but I was miserable, like not happy. Um, not healthy, not any of the things. And so um, this continued for about a year and I recognized that I needed to make a change. And so I quit my job and um, and then ironically, right after I quit my job, I got recruited for Face It Together. So um, learned a lot about like things I wish I would have known <laughs> when I had been um, yeah, going yeah. the year prior. Um, and so really that, and so now I practice, I would say harm reduction 
And so for me, it's being, as I mentioned, mindful. So just really thinking about, okay, why am I having this drink? Am I coming, am I coming home from a bad day and I'm using the bad drink to erase my bad, using the drink to erase my bad day? Or am I just, you know, having dinner and I'm having a glass of wine? You know, like it's looking at when and why I'm doing it and making sure that I'm doing it for the right reasons. Um, but I definitely feel I was on a path if I hadn't made a change. So like a lot of people will minimize my story because they're like, well, you're, you didn't have a problem. Oh, I definitely had a problem. <laughs> I like couldn't wait to get home so I could open that bottle of wine. I mean, um, but it wasn't the proverbial rock bottom. And so people don't think of that as being a true issue. And so I think it's, again, it's just trying to help change that narrative and getting people to recognize that there are ways to prevent getting to that point. And so. Um, it sounds like you'd have to like have a handle on what your habits are or what your go-to coping strategies are. Some people like to take notes. Some people like to just go sort of mental awareness, a way of like analyzing themselves a little bit. It can seem a little robotic to to do it but I imagine especially when you're going from I don't know two bottles of wine to a bottle and a glass you know you're gradually trying to reduce it down how do you suggest people start being more aware of of what they're like or what the tendencies are or how do they spend because it sounds like you've had to go on your own little like awareness journey yourself Wendy so I imagine you've I wouldn't say you're an expert at it as in you can tell people what to do, but your experience will definitely help others. So how would you actually suggest people do this? Become more self-aware, more analytical, I guess, about their behaviors, try to figure themselves out. How can people do it? Yeah. So um, for me, I, I didn't, I guess, part of my story that I didn't share um, right at the end of that year. Um, so I, my youngest child was you know, five or six at the time. And he had, um, was going to do a play and he had given my husband and I tickets for this play and was up in his room and I was making dinner. And normally I would have been like, yeah, whatever, buddy, I'll later, later, and then later would never happen. And, um, but I actually took the time to do it that night. And he talked about it for weeks afterwards. And like this light bulb went off in my head that I've been missing out on all of these moments like this that are just normal everyday moments, but I was missing them. Um, so I don't know if there's like a, a silver bullet. I think it's just paying attention to the universe and what the universe is trying to tell you because that for me that was my sign like um the fact that something so simple as going and watching this five minute play that my son put on um woke me up to know that I needed to make a change and and that's going to be different for everyone but um I don't know it's I suppose just taking stock of what you you know like having your what are your values and what is your um what fills your cup and make sure that the things that are filling your cup are really part of your life. One of the things that that made me think about was I think it was Evan Almighty, the, the comedy film, where is it, uh, Morgan Freeman plays God in, in the films. And he says, does 
God make you feel a certain way or does he create situations to teach you that thing? So if you want to be more patient, does he make you more patient or does he put you in situations that would normally frustrate you to exercise patience, to be more patient? So does he just give you the thing or does he let you create it? you know, with the way that you experience life. And I've started to see things a bit more that way. I don't know if if you have. And it's hard because you've got to realize that what you're responding to in an impatient way, there is a better way to go about it. There is a more effective way. There is a more helpful way. Even if the only benefit that you get is your own stability, in a way, is the only way I could put it. You're more stable if you're more patient, more resilient, less negative, less reactive. It's a bit stoic in a way. I don't like using that word. But having the ability to react in a better way than you were doing is kind of all that there is, you know, you want to be patient. Okay, you've got to be in situations that challenge your level of patience to trigger it, to cause you to overflow in your frustration and become impatient. It, it often tests you, but you're always patient, aren't you? Because you've never been tested. You're always healthy, aren't you? Because you've never been tested. It's like if you've never been put in those situations, you won't know how patient you are until you're stuck in a traffic jam that's like 10 miles long <laughs> and you're not going anywhere. Then we'll see how patient you really are, if you understand what I mean. So I found that that's kind of what it is, in a way. Um, it's been my experience. It's been a lot of other people's experience. It sounds like similar to what you were saying there with your, your child's play as well, was that in order to acknowledge that maybe you weren't being as present with your child he had to create this play to let you see that that's what was going on mm -hmm. yeah that makes sense yeah absolutely i mean it certainly woke me up and um, made me recognize that a change needed to happen and um you know, I think, again, it'd be different for everyone, but it's it's hoping that people can have that light bulb go off sooner, or I should say it probably goes off, but that they actually listen to it and actually act on it. Because um, I think people see the signs long before they hit yeah. rock bottom, mm -hmm. um, but it's actually doing something about it earlier in the process and recognizing that this is the point that a change needs to be made. Yeah, that makes sense, actually, because it's one thing to have the information, another thing to act on it and do something productive with it. What did you do when, when you had that? What, what, what did you do? you have to sit down and think, right, this needs to change? And you just uprooted everything and replanted it in the right places. I imagine it wasn't as easy as that. But <laughs> if, if you have the light bulb and you're, you're sat there like, oh, this is what's been happening i need to change this i don't like this what happens next well I, I think i got lucky um i mean i quit my job that was the root of a lot of my stress which is pretty drastic and dramatic so i'm not saying that's the answer either for everyone um but then i think just the fact that i ended up where i ended up at face it together and i just 
I mean, again, could I have really benefit from benefited from having a peer coach? I absolutely. And it may have been able to then not quit my job had I been engaged in that way. But I, I think just being part of the organization, learning more about um, addiction, more about the effects of alcohol and other drugs. Um, I think it just helped me just understand things better. And then um, again, it's that my, for me, it was the mindfulness concept. There's lots of different concepts for people on, on what is um, helpful for them. But that's the one that works for me is for me to just really pause for a minute and think, okay, why am I doing this? Nope. And the first time I had a bad day and I didn't come home and drink, like it was such a win. Like I felt amazing. And I was like, I didn't drink last night. <laughs> like, which I mean, probably it's, it's a little silly, but like, it was a big step for me. And, um, I guess another, you know, I had another situation where, um, I, anyway, I don't need to get into all of it, but I was meeting someone. I was really nervous and normally I would have had a drink at dinner and I didn't. And that too was just an amazing feeling because I was fully present, fully aware, you know, remembered the whole conversation. Like it was, um, it was just in like remembering that feeling. And so then that's something too to draw off of in future situations that like, yeah, I don't, I don't need to have a drink to cope with this anxiety that I'm having situation. It sounds like once you've figured out how you tick and why you're doing what it is that you're doing. And then I guess you've got to also understand that everything can potentially have a negative consequence but some have less than others there are things that you can do that have less negative consequences than others and i I kind of feel like that could make a big difference for people you know that there are other ways to respond there are other ways to react even to the situations that you're in Uh, but wendy it's been great to have you on i really enjoyed hearing your story and some help for people that are going through this and the people that are trying to support them through it as well. So how can people find out more about you? You can share about the nonprofit, the work that you're doing. How can people get involved? And yeah, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're Face It Together. So you can go on the web to wefaceittogether.org. Thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Those that are listening, feel free to subscribe, share the show, tell others, and also leave a review wherever you are listening in to your podcasts. Wendy, thanks so much for joining me, and I look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. If you want to join a group of like-minded people that are all out to achieve their goals, their dreams, their aspirations, and that gets the help and support from me and the other members, then my inner circle is for you. There's a link in the description for this episode to get two months free of the inner circle. So you set your membership up, you get two months free access. Hopefully I'll see you there and I look forward to helping you on your journey of achieving the life that you want.